Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Kelly for History 311. Uh, today we're doing two kind of mini podcasts, mini being subjective. Uh, these will probably be about 20-30 minutes or so. Uh, for this week, for this week's assignment for Week 5 Cotton Kingdom, going to be kind of combining two. The first one's a more general history of what's going on in the early um, early Republic. You know, the United States is now a country. We, we have freed ourselves from the British. And then finally, um, well, then we get into cotton itself. So let's do the first one. Let's do uh, African Americans in the New Nation. Now, after the war, things start looking better for black folks in the North. Um, year-round work wasn't really uh, needed uh, because of the cold winters in the North. You don't need year-round labor. Uh, also, there are more immigrants coming in who work for cheap, and these new immigrants, because they're cheaper labor, tend to resent slaves. Remember, economically speaking, it's very hard to beat uh, free, quote-unquote, labor, or that in that regard. Um, also, you have things like natural rights doctrines, evangelical Christianities. They start adding more support to anti-slave efforts, at least in the North. Uh, Congress doesn't really want to keep slaves in any of these northern states, mainly to keep the peace. Uh, once again, it doesn't mean they were crazy about black folks. I cannot iterate that enough. A lot of these times, these free states aren't keen on black folks in general because they're seen as cheap labor and undermining society in some regards. Now, Northern Emancipation. Uh, Northern Emancipation. Uh, the thing you need to know is in 1804, uh, there is a revolution in Haiti. There's a revolution in Haiti in 1804. It's a giant slave uh, revolution. Toussaint Louverture pretty much kicks the French out of Haiti. Uh, he kicks the French out of Haiti. Ultimately, France pretty much gets rid of all their territory in the New World, including Louisiana, including Louisiana, which actually technically happens a little bit before this. Uh, but still, the, the, the French are out of the New World, uh, and pretty much they ban, you know, pretty much Haiti ban slavery. They're the first place to really ban slavery. Uh, the British Empire also does the same thing in 1838. The British Empire banned slavery in 1838, and France does so in 1848. I should mention the import of slaves have been waiting for quite a while, uh, basically bringing in more slaves. It had been kind of going down, so it looked that, hey, eventually the U.S. is going to get rid of slaves. Eventually. Eventually they would get rid of slavery, and eventually they wouldn't have the need for slaves. Uh, economically speaking, things were happening with industrialization, labor was getting cheaper in different regards, and so slaves weren't as necessary. Slavery is starting to get abolished state by state, uh, with those in New England doing first. Uh, those in New England started doing it first, and as you went further south, the harder it became, I mean, because there was more investment in slavery, and also more money was to be made in the system. Uh, for instance, there's a slave uh, by the name of Elizabeth Freeman. Uh, she sues for her own re freedom in, um, in Massachusetts, and she actually gets it. She actually gets her own freedom in Massachusetts. She's frees for, she frees herself through um, through suing. Uh, for Another instance of that is Quack Walker. Quack Walker, another slave in Massachusetts. Basically, he says, you know, I shouldn't be enslaved. And basically, the authorities of Massachusetts agree. And by the first U.S. Census in 1790, it states, quote, there is no more slavery in Massachusetts, which is a pretty big, pretty populous New England colony. I mean, you have Boston there. Uh, you do have black people, but they're not, um, they're not enslaved black people. Uh, as I said, by the time you get to like the um, mid-Atlantic states, the middle colonies, 
Uh, it's a little bit harder. Uh, gradual emancipation was the norm. Uh, gradual emancipation was the norm in places like uh, Pennsylvania, which never had too many slaves, New York, New Jersey. Uh, basically, they said they're going to, you know, basically all people under a certain age will be freed or, you know, we're going to have no more new slaves. Let those who are already born a slave uh, die a slave. Uh, they, there was there was this idea that there was fear of uh, emancipation, but basically you're going to be letting this person, giving them freedom, and they may not know what to do with it. Uh, you know, Massachusetts does have the free and equal clause, which allows black men the right to vote. Uh, not the case in a lot of other places. A lot of case in a lot of other places. As you can see in this map right here on the next slide, uh, the New England colonies in the north, they barely have any slavery by the time the country comes around. Well, they're not colonies, they're states now, I should say. Uh, the middle territories, uh, the middle, the former middle colonies, now they're states, uh, like New York and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, they have some slavery. Uh, they really go with emancipation. Uh, however, that's not the case in the South. Now, something you do want to talk about. Uh, the first form of government, the first form of government uh, that the United States has is not the Constitution as we know it. It's what's called the Articles of Confederation. It is a dumpster fire of a country. It's a dumpster fire of a form of government. It's pretty awful. It's pretty awful. But the only thing it does pretty well is what's called the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance is passed in 1787. Uh, it bans slavery from the old Northwest region. Places like modern-day Illinois. If you look on the map, uh, you'll see the Northwest Territory. If you go back to see that map, uh, modern-day Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Minnesota, uh, parts of Wisconsin. Actually, parts of Wisconsin, parts of Minnesota and all of Wisconsin. Um, Indiana, places like that, it outlaws slavery. Um, the fear is with slavery that they thought it would make it too... <sighs> this is not necessarily because they're concerned about the plight of black persons or like have really are scared for the humanity of these black people. It's mainly that uh, it makes elites in territory. You know, the slave owners become the slaveholding elite. They don't want this in these territories. Um... There's no real humanitarian purpose uh, for it. I mean, in some areas like Ohio, black people are just aren't allowed, uh, period. Also, there's the, uh, the fear that black people, be them slaves or, or free, uh, would ruin the price of labor. Uh, the region south of the Ohio River was open for slavery. It's like Kentucky. Uh, some do remain slaves in the old, in the old Northwest Territories, uh, mainly if they were slaves before they got to the territories. Uh, this is very much rare. There are not many slaves in Northwest Territories, mainly because they don't want the economic competition. What is important, even though the Articles of Confederation sucked, and I cannot iterate how much they suck, it does set the precedent under the new Constitution, and as the U.S. starts spreading out across the, uh, the, the North American continent, that basically... Future territory would be free territory, uh, theoretically speaking. Uh, basically, the Northwest Ordinance has to do with how, the, how territory becomes a state. And this idea that pushing for free labor, that's something that the southern states really don't care for. Uh, this assumption that new territory would become free land as opposed to slave land has to do with a lot of different things. This idea that you know independent agriculture was what's going to make people free and make them the best citizens. Now, you also start having some anti-slavery societies. In the upper, 
in the north and also in the upper south. Uh, these are never in the deep south, I should mention. These are never in the deep south. Uh, a lot of them are Quaker. A lot of them are Quaker, uh, Quaker organized, at least some of the earliest abolitionists are. Uh, they are white only. They are white only. Quakers, they do believe in equality between the races, which a lot of people didn't believe in during this time period. Uh, Quakers are the, are the exception to that. But that said, uh, they are some of the first abolition societies. Uh, these abolitionists really do fear um, uh, immediate emancipation. They thought it would overwhelm our social structure. It would be bad for the slaves. Like the slaves would be unable to like control themselves. They might be taken advantage of by unscrupulous people. Also, that elderly slaves would be abandoned. They, they, they like you know, if a slave had worked for a master their entire life and they're eighty years old. You know, a master would probably have reason to, like, keep them alive, at least. But if they're by themselves, oh my goodness, they, something bad might happen to them. And ultimately, that uh, slaves had to be trained. Uh, basically, they need some training. And uh, there's also issues of, should we take away people's property? Uh, that is an issue as well. Remember, they fought a revolution uh, about, you know, don't take people's property without compensation or representation. And the idea that slaves are considered somebody's property, should they be getting rid of, that's, that's another issue they don't really want to mess around with. Now, weirdly enough, a lot of these people who are in these organizations, um, not Quakers, Quakers are not slaves, but other white persons involved in these organizations are actually slave owners themselves. And they're kind of opposed to slavery in the abstract, but not in practice. They say, you know what, eventually we're going to outlaw slavery. Eventually slavery will go away. But they're like, you know what, there's real no immediate need to do it. Uh, there's no real immediate need to do it. Now in the Upper South, they do have some anti-slave societies. They are very small and they are incredibly short-lived. Uh, they are incredibly short-lived. Not too, too many of them to be really talked about. Now, another way, some, some southern states, instead of emancipation, allow what's called manumission. Uh, manumission is the purchasing of one's own freedom. Basically, um, a, a slave could enter an agreement with their master that they could purchase their own freedom. Free, freeman? Freedom. Kind of like a variation of the old... Um, indentured servitude thing. Uh, Virginia at first did not allow this, but as time went on, more southern states, if they allowed slaves to get freed, it was through manumission. It's a fairly high raw number of slaves who do this, but it's actually a fairly low percentage of all the slaves in the South. Uh, masters generally profit from these self-purchase agreements. I mean, slaves generally paid in installments over the course of their lives for freedoms. And it often left African-Americans in financial trouble because once you pay for yourself, I mean, you, you, you can't really do anything else with it. You might have limited skills. You might enter into another agreement with uh, these individuals. You also start having a free upper, well, a class of free black people in the Deep South. Uh, not the Upper South. The Upper South, most of the black population remained in slavery, even with manumission. Um, in the Deep South, it was fairly unusual for, for slaves to be freed in general. Uh, those who were freed were generally the children of the masters or the favorites, or the favorites, uh, maybe long-time service, something like that. Uh, yet, however, you do have, uh, you know, some rich people of color that come about uh, in places like Savannah and Charleston, and especially New Orleans. 
Uh, New Orleans was annexed to the Union in 1804, and Louisiana becomes a state in 1812. Uh, some free black class, they do identify with their former masters uh, sometimes, but other times they don't. Now, forces for slavery, um, I, I should mention real quick, as you can see on the slide, they're way, forcer, way stronger and way forceful than the forces for freedom. Uh, way more, way more people that are interested in, you know, making sure slavery exists than those resisting slavery. Uh, yeah, slavery was on the decline in the, in the North, but it was definitely growing in the South. Uh, Virginia still has the highest number of slaves, like in terms of raw numbers, but new states and territories were getting a higher percentage of the population as enslaved. Now, a big force that was in favor of slavery is the Constitution. Uh, after the dumpster fire that was the Articles Confederation, the, the country decided in the mid-1780s, mid you know what, maybe we need a new form of government. Um, maybe one that's stronger. Maybe one that could tax, for instance. That's something the Articles Confederation could not do, was tax. Now, to be fair, the articles that make up the Constitution, the, the Constitution itself, does not have the word slave explicitly written, but... It has plenty of concessions to the southern states to make sure that slavery would be protected and they wouldn't be too upset. Uh, for instance, uh, when they wrote the, wrote the Constitution in 1788, they pretty much punted on what to do about the import of slaves. Uh, pretty much they said they would not do anything about it for 20 years, until 1808. Uh, pretty much letting future them take care of the issue. That's something we all do. Let our future selves take care of the hard issues in our life country does that too. Uh, it does, however, give masters more power to, uh, escape, uh, to like pursue escaped slaves, fugitive slave acts. And also slaveholders start claiming, you know, there's really bad labor shortages, so we have to have slavery. That's the way to get into it. Um, also, you have the three-fifths clause, which counts slaves as three-fifths of a person for population purposes, which helps southern states get more um, representation in Congress gives them more voting clout. So even though the you know, various people don't really consider them uh, full human beings, well, they're still considered uh, persons for purposes of counting for the population of an area. Now, another big thing that's behind slavery is cotton, which we're gonna talk about a lot more in the next podcast, but just know that uh, increased cotton cultivation fosters continued enslavement. Uh, way more people are getting enslaved because of cotton. Why does it really go up? Uh, the cotton gin is the main reason. Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin, uh, basically which allows the picking of seeds from hardier breeds of cotton. Uh, there is uh, different like lengths of cotton, different breeds and varieties of cotton. Uh, the one that's a little bit hardier and could uh, grow easier had really small seeds that are really hard to get out of. Uh, basically, thanks to the cotton gin, Eli Whitney, who ironically built the cotton gin to like decrease the number of slaves, actually increased the number of slaves. Uh, cotton becomes very lucrative. It becomes the most lucrative U.S. import. And also reinvigorates the slave labor system. Uh, before this time, slavery had kind of been going down, you know, kind of like, okay, places are starting to like maybe not do it. Uh, cotton was like steroids to slavery. It's like, oh my gosh, we all got to do it now. It's also unique that most of the slaves from cotton production came from the domestic slave trade. Um, 
masters in Maryland and Virginia who no longer needed the slaves because they had kind of transitioned out now sell them to places like Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi instead of freeing slaves. Uh, now masters have an incentive not to free a slave if they don't need the work anymore. They can just sell them for a bunch of money downriver to a place in the Deep South. Now, one of the reasons why there's tons of land for cotton is because of the Louisiana Purchase. The Louisiana Purchase really, 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 really invigorates uh, the size of the United States. Uh, <laughs> dramatically increases it. And it kind of throws off the whole dynamics of the country. Uh, the Louisiana Purchase like, is all this new land. It's really accelerating uh, people westward. Uh, demand for sugar and cotton causes harsh slave conditions. Tobacco and indigo were some of the earliest plantation crops. But now with cotton in places like, you know, Alabama and Mississippi, which granted are not part of the Louisiana Purchase, but with the Louisiana Purchase, the country like doubles in size. All sorts of new land like uh, parts of Texas, uh, well, not parts of Texas yet, Louisiana, you know, Arkansas, Missouri, you know what the Louisiana Purchase looks like. All of that is now seen as, you know what, this is going to be a good place to go. Now, many of these slaves from the domestic slave trade are sold to the new big slave market, which is New Orleans. Now, New Orleans is, remember, as I mentioned, has got a lot of free people of color, particularly Creoles, who have like a lot of French ancestry and actually part of the elite of the city. Then you have these slaves who are coming in uh, from other parts of the country or coming in from Africa. Uh, New Orleans becomes a much more important slave port, particularly with the slave, domestic slave trade. Now, at first, you know, New Orleans was kind of cosmopolitan. It had slavery, but then uh, it really increases the number of slaves. And basically, African Americans become seen as a lower class, even though the Creoles never go away in New Orleans, because of the sheer influx of slaves. Another thing is conservatism. Another thing is conservatism. Now, I bet you're like, hold on there, Tully. Conservatism? You're talking bad about politics. No. Old school conservative. Um... The idealism and the radicalism had uh, kind of started to wane. Uh, you know, people weren't talking about like having violent overthrows anymore. Part of that is just the nature of the passage of time. People tend to get a little bit more conservative as they get older. But a lot of it has to do with the disgust of the, and shock from the French Revolution. Uh, the French Revolution happens after the American Revolution. Uh, the French start... The revolution, theoretically, because of, uh, you know, they, they help the Americans, now they want to do them for themselves, get rid of the king. And then they start, like, guillotining people in the street. It, it turns crazy. And the Americans watch this with horror. They're like, oh, my God, we don't want this here. So there's more fear of a radical revolution happening, uh, be it slave or be it just poor people, honestly. And there's also the demand for cotton. I cannot iterate that enough. Um, appeals to race and racism become a lot more common. We've talked about this quite a bit. I'm sure we'll discuss it. I'm not going to talk about it right, too much right now. Uh, dehumanizing black folks for things like science and other things for labeling them lesser. And also the law has changed to define an American as a white person. Like explicitly to be an American is a white person. And the only role for a black person is as a slave. So if you do have free people of color, there seems the exception, and particularly a very dangerous exception. Now you do have the emergence of some free black communities, free people of color, uh, generally in cities, which does allow for more opportunity. Uh, some of the first ones we talk about, um, 
We, we talk a good bit about African-American organizations in this class. Probably the first real one is mutual aid societies. Uh, mutual aid societies, they're kind of akin to modern-day insurance agencies. Pretty much they exist for free people of color uh, to make sure that members' medical and burial expenses were uh, taken care of, and also that their family members were too. Like basically, it's kind of like life insurance. You know, basically you, you pay money to help out your fellow man, and then if you get sick or you die, uh, the Mutual Aid Society is going to provide money for, you know, because they've collected from their members over the years to help out, you know, your widow, help out your children, make sure you have a good funeral, things like that. Uh, these societies go over all over the place. I, I should mention there are some for women, but most of them for men. Um, they, they, like, it's kind of middle class in, in its values. I mean, you don't have too many like super wealthy African-Americans outside of New Orleans. Uh, but these do start spreading to pretty much every like American city, every urban center. Even places in the north, which theoretically don't have slavery, they do have some black folks. Generally in city, they have these type of organizations. Another one is masons. Uh, masonry becomes kind of big for African Americans. These various masons, uh, Freemasonry. These are not guys who work with stones. This is like a theoretic secret society. Uh, the most famous one is Prince, uh, sorry, the most famous black mason is Prince Hall. Uh, he organizes the first black mason lodge in Boston and organizes some later. Uh, Prince Hall Masons, like I said, uh, you can go over one slide, you can see a picture of him. Uh, basically, you see him being a Mason, he's a craftsman, he's a former slave. You should know that, you know, if there are people of color of means, groups are going to come in these cities. Now, the most important core of pretty much black communities in general throughout African American history, uh, more than just religious, is the black church. Uh, the black church is really, really super important in the black community. Uh, this is everything. This is a church. It's like a civic center. It's a community organization. It's a place to find food and aid. Uh, yeah. Uh, whenever the second grade awakening comes around and more black people are getting preached to, at first black people are in church with white people, an integrated church, but they had to be second class members. Uh, in time, various black people got tired of it. They're like, you know what? This sucks. This is, you know, this is not Christian or why can't we have our own church type of thing? You know what? Screw it. We're going to make our own. Uh, the first truly independent uh, black church is uh, Mother Bethel. Uh, Mother Bethel was in Philadelphia. In turn, it would later form the first major black religious denomination, which is the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. AME Church, African Methodist Episcopalian Church. Um, that is the king of black churches. Like when you talk about black church denominations, AME churches are at the top uh, by far. Maybe some of y'all are members of AME churches. I, I know for a fact you've probably bought, at least passed by one. Uh, black or white, if you've driven around anywhere really, you will see AME churches. Now, you also have your first black schools. Your first black schools uh, kind of dates fairly early. Uh, fairly early, and unsurprisingly, they're often affiliated with churches and mutual aid societies. Uh, sometimes it's for the members of the mutual aid societies uh, that, uh, you know, basically they make sure that their kids are getting an education. Uh, churches have a long history of providing education, absolutely. Uh, these schools do have some difficulties. Uh, a lot of times with funding. Uh, a lot of times you're dealing with a poor percentage of the population who doesn't have that much money so they can't afford them. 
Um, some people think that education is pointless. I mean, even some free black people think education is pointless because society at large doesn't really know anything to do with an educated black person. Also, some white persons fear the schools because they think it's going to encourage slave revolt. They're afraid that if uh, free black people get too much education, they're going to mess with the slaves and the slaves can get messages around. Uh, there's also threats of violence against the black school children and the schools in general. It's fairly common. Uh, more threats than anything actually done. Still, they serve a growing group of literate black persons, but by and large, not slaves. Now, you also have some black leaders. You also have some black leaders. Um, for instance, clergy are the big one. There's a lot of clergy, and they're keenly aware that America is not a great place for black people. They're aware that, like, America, it talks a lot of stuff, but you know what? I mean, you have the slave issue, but even if you're not a slave, America doesn't really have the best stuff going on for black people. So even though they're pastors and they're preaching from the pulpit about Jesus and God and things, they also start talking about how, like, hey, you know, America kind of sucks for us black folks. Maybe we should do something about it. Uh they, they do know, if you can go over one slide, you'll see that they often have some choices about what to do for African-Americans. Uh, some condemn slavery, but they're not really activists. They're not out there re you know, revolting against it or like trying to make abolition happen. And then you have others who really want African-Americans to do their own destiny. And it's kind of keenly aware because they know that black people are not equal in society, but some still feel the need to help the U.S. and support the country's decisions. And it, it can be difficult to be patriotic, for lack of a better term, for a country that really doesn't know what to do with you, doesn't really see a place for you. And so a lot of these black leaders start talking about what should we do to make things better for us? What can we do to make things better for us? Now, one of the big ones that people talk about is migration. You know, if America is not that great for African-Americans, maybe they should leave. Maybe black folks should leave America. If the white folks don't want us, why are we trying to stay? Uh, so basically, some of them thought that free black people would be better elsewhere. Uh, the big society about this is the American Colonization Society. The American Colonization Society. Um, it, it has support by a lot of prominent people. Uh, some black people support it, but a lot of prominent white people support it. Uh, most notably, George Washington's nephew. Uh, George Washington's nephew is... Uh, George Washington never had any uh, legitimate children, no white children. He had plenty of black children, but he had no white children. The closest thing he had was his nephew, and his nephew was a big-time supporter of the American Colonization Society. Uh, leads a group, leads a group, uh, basically, to get this all together. Uh, they start the Back to Africa movement, basically saying, hey... African-Americans, black folks, free people of color should go back to Africa, make a new country. You know, we've got religion. We can make things better. We can improve Africa. Uh, go back to Sierra Leone. Ultimately, they make a new country called Liberia. There's a new country called Liberia. Now, some see it as quite popular because it's going to end the slave trade and also provide a safety valve for the former slaves slash get them out. Like, all right, we're going to get rid of slavery, but we're not going to have free black people running around. The U.S. can still remain a white country. And it can also be used as Christianary, 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 Christian missionary work. The idea that, you know, black people could go and convert the black natives. Uh, there are some probable elements to be had there. We'll talk about it in class. Now, some other people start talking about slave rebellions. Uh, some slaves and free people 
think, you know what, maybe we should join a revolutionary movement to destroy slavery. A lot of this comes from the success of Toussaint Louverture in 1804 in the Haitian Rebellion. Uh, Louverture, basically, he's, he is a black person. He is a former slave in Haiti. He is the one who leads the rebellion. He is a articulate, educated, smart, good speaker, great, great leader in the field. He is the spiritual leader and also military leader behind the Haitian Revolution and kicks the white masters out of Haiti, gets rid of the French from Haiti, and scares the crippity crap out of white mis- masters everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, the, the success of Haiti theoretically like uh, inspires other African Americans to do something and scares the crap out of white masters. For instance, in Virginia, a guy by the name of Gabriel is planning a huge slave um, insurrection. A huge slave insurrection. I remember Virginia has the highest number of slaves, if not the highest percentage. Uh, basically, he is caught before the uprising. He is convicted and hung. He is convicted and hung. Uh, one that happened around here, one that happened like literally 20 miles from Nichols. You can go to the various plantations and see the reactions or see like, you know, see some of the things. Uh, DeLong. Uh, DeLon, basically, he's a former Haitian. He comes to the United States, uh, gets to one of these sugar plantations on the Mississippi coast. Not the Mississippi coast. Well, the, the Mississippi River. Like, you know, not too far from Nichols. And basically uses Haitian rhetoric to basically cause a slave revolt around the plantations around New Orleans. Uh, he starts going around to different plantations, plundering them, uh, burning plantations, U.S. military is sent in to kill the rebels. They are. Uh, Delon is, Delon's is found guilty of rebellion. He is shot. Uh, hands and heads were also cut off of the, of the people who participated in the rebellion and posted all around New Orleans and the Mississippi River to serve as a warning. Now, I should mention there were way more rumors about slave revolts than actually happened. But still, the main white Southern reaction to all this is one word. Fear. Uh, there is tons of fear of African-Americans by the white persons, by the white masters. Um, basically, white persons, the, you know, the white leadership, the white elite, starts making black bondage even stronger. Uh, southern states start banning assemblies of, like, African-Americans. They can't meet together. Slaves can't meet together. Uh, before this time, slaves might be able to get, like, a Sunday off, to, like, be able to go to local plantations or, you know, see family members or friends or whatever. They stop doing that. Also, there's more assumptions that uh, free black people are involved in um, assembly, uh, in uprisings. And more white people are like, you know what, maybe we should get rid of all black people, you know, unless they're enslaved, get rid of free black people. There's a fear that revolution was coming just any second now. Now, the War of 1812, I should mention, I should mention, uh, the War of 1812, I should mention very briefly, uh, basically, this is a time where the British and the French struggle for control of the Atlantic world. It's kind of the American Revolution Part Two. Uh, the war itself is not that important. I mean, the U.S. And, and Britain fight to a draw. The U.S. doesn't get Canada. Uh, the British do burn the American capital, so that's something. Uh, black people were feared, though. Uh, this is unlike the Revolution, where African Americans are like you know begrudgingly given the chance to fight. Uh, by and large, African Americans are not allowed to fight. And the British, they do offer the blacks freedom in return for help, but unlike Lord Dunmore's proclamation, nothing really happens there. The one thing that does happen with free black people is the Battle of New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans, it's a major battle, the the U.S.'s first major military victory, 
even though ironically it happened after the peace treaty was signed, uh, still doesn't matter. It's kind of a moral victory at the end. Um, Andrew Jackson also becomes a hero. Uh, this is probably the reason he becomes president, or at least gets on the national radar, is because of his efforts in the Battle of New Orleans. This is a major victory for the country, a huge morale boost. And Andrew Jackson, for his faults, which they are many and we're going to get into, uh, he actually treated the black troops equally. He offered them equal pay, and he offered them benefits um, for being a part of this military to save New Orleans. Uh, he also offered everybody a chance to do that. Uh, black, white, Native American, pirates. Um, that's quite a that's quite impressive for Andrew Jackson, who was slaveholding and a paragon of white virtue uh, during this time period. Now, the final thing we're going to talk about is the Missouri Compromise. Uh, the Missouri Compromise is going to be kind of the uh, kind of the fly in the ointment that kind of screws up everything. It, it kind of is. You ever had a big problem and you're not going to solve it for forever, but you're just going to like put a patch on it? That's kind of the Missouri Compromise. Because after 1815, the North and South, uh, like these kind of sectional issues start reviving again. Um, yeah, the first political parties come around, the Federalists, the Republicans, later on the Democrats or the Democratic Republicans. And they have a, a balance in Congress. There's an equal number of slave states and there's an equal number of uh, free states. And they kind of have a rough balance in Congress, which, you know, people are okay with. It uh, you know, it allows things to be kind of even. Uh, this is kind of screwed up in 1819 whenever Missouri applies for admission as a slave state. As a slave state. Now, this is where things start to get testy. This is where things start to get testy because Missouri joining would give two more senators to the South and the slavers, which could theoretically get all sorts of crazy, you know, things passed. And the North is afraid of it. Uh, likewise, the North is afraid, you know, once there's a slave majority in Congress, slavery would increase everywhere. Remember, they're not exactly against slavery because they're, like, great with race. It's because they're afraid of the economic elements of it. Uh, meanwhile, Jefferson and, and Southerners... Uh, they're afraid of restrictions. Uh, and, uh, Thomas Jefferson is no longer president in this time period, but he's still a, quite a speaker. And basically, he's like, no, we don't need restrictions on slavery. That's impending our freedom and independence, that sort of thing. So what ultimately happens, what ultimately happens is a compromise. Hence the term Missouri Compromise. Uh, basically, it allows, it allows, it allows... <laughs> Missouri to be admitted as a slave state with Maine being admitted as a free state. Maine used to be a part of Massachusetts. Uh, they're like, you know, we're going to make this into a new state, a free state. So basically we can keep the balance in Congress. That solves the immediate issue. But in the long term, they decide, you no, know, we're going to divide future territory at the 3630 line of latitude. You will see right there the line, the, Diveri, the Missouri Compromise line. If you look at the map, you're going to see the line of the Missouri Compromise, 3630 latitude line. You see it right there. Pretty much anything north of that is going to be free. Anything south of that is going to be enslaved. So as you can see, anything north is going to be free. Anything south is going to be slaved. Now, theoretically, that's going to help, except cotton screws up everything. But we're going to talk about cotton in the next podcast, which is going to be happening right now. But in conclusion, uh, Northern emancipation uh, contrasted with the Southern racism, which was stronger, and also with slavery. Uh, new opportunities do abound, but most African Americans do remain slaves. 
And white Southerners want permanent black bondage because they're terribly, awfully afraid of various rebellions. Now that's going to do it for this one. Like I said, it's a short one. So next time, which is going to be recorded right now, we talk about cotton.